will you turn with me this evening to several passages in the book of 1 John as we read a selection of verses this evening rather than a consecutive passage. If you will turn with me to chapter 5, verse 1, where we read concerning faith, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. And uh, then you notice that in, uh, let me find my, my scripture reading here this evening, because of these several selective verses, chapter 3, verse 9, where we read concerning sin, no one is born of God, who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. And similarly in chapter 5, verse 18, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. And in chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, Concerning obedience, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. And also in 2, verse 29, where we read again, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him on the theme of righteousness. And then the final selection, chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. In chapter 5, verse 4, if you just turn to that verse also, chapter 5, verse 4, where we read, For everyone born of God has overcome the world. And last of all, chapter 1, Verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. May God indeed bless to us these several portions of his own inspired word. Now, last Sunday evening I preached on the concluding verses of chapter 5 of the book of First John, on the encouraging theme of the things we know. And you will remember that the letter of John and his final postscript ends on the encouraging and uplifting note that believers have power over sin, but they have persuasion of their sonship in Christ, and that they are able to participate in the fellowship that is with the Father and the Son. And this letter, whose theme was Christian assurance, fittingly ended then with those great threefold statements that began as we saw last Sunday evening, we know, we know, we know. Now I indicated on that occasion that there would probably be two further concluding expositions to the letter on the account of its importance for us in the living of our Christian lives. And I have to say to you this evening that not two Sunday evenings, but three or possibly four through December, I want to take up 
with summarizing the message of this great portion of Scripture. To look with you tonight at the evidences for the new birth, the evidences for being a Christian, and on the following Sunday evening at the seven tests of Christian genuineness, and then to devote a third Sunday evening to the question, do we really love one another in the light of the teaching of this letter? And when finally, on what is commonly called Christmas Sunday evening, with a summary exposition under the title Blessed Assurance, because this letter is nothing if it is not the Christian's charter of assurance concerning eternal life. And on that occasion, I want to look once more with you at the conclusion of John's letter because of its great importance for us. Now, the reason that I want to do this is to reinforce and reapply some of these great themes that we've looked at individually in the course of this exposition. What is valuable and I think necessary for us, for our spiritual well-being and for our health and growth together as God's people, is to take these things conjointly together and see them as it were as an overview of the themes that we have explored in such detail across these many months. Now, one of the reasons is that we do need to examine ourselves constantly. We believe ourselves to be in the faith, to be regenerated by God's grace. But if that is so, we need to ask the question, are the evidences there that show that we are what we say we are. And this evening I want, as I say, to look at some of these evidences, seven of them in all. And if you're here tonight as someone, perhaps, who is not really sure whether you're a Christian, and I never take it for granted as a pastor that all before me are in the Lord, if you're not sure whether you are a Christian, there is no better way of becoming sure than to look at the evidences that John, the aged apostle, gives to us so clearly and succinctly in this great letter that we are seeking to summarize together on these Sunday evenings. Now, as you notice from the sermon notes tonight, I've summarized seven evidences under simply three headings on account of space and the limitation of space. But what I want to do tonight, as time permits, is to look, however briefly, with you at each one of these seven evidences that are listed in front of you tonight in the light of the question, what are the biblical marks of someone who has become a new creation in Christ Jesus? And you boys and girls who are here this evening, and again we're glad that you are here, I want you to listen very carefully tonight because there is no more important question for you in the whole of life than the question, am I born again? Have I become a Christian? Have I passed out of a state of spiritual death and separation from God into one of spiritual life? and fellowship with him? Do I know that my sins are forgiven? Do I know that one day I'm going to the same place, 
but hopefully my parents are going to, to be with the Lord in heaven? Or am I looking at an eternity of suffering and separation from God and from them and from all the Christian people that I've known in this church? And I press upon you all this evening that we're not dealing with trivialities. We're dealing with the very central things of our Christian faith. What are the evidences that I have passed from death into life and that I am a child of God? And I want to suggest to you then that John tells us that the first of these marks is that I have faith in the Lord Jesus. Look again at chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And the first mark then and evidence of the new birth is that I am a believer from the heart in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, you might say to me tonight, it's such an obvious truth. Why do we need this emphasized and brought to our attention? And the answer is, because perhaps we have not grasped the implications of believing in Christ as John sets them out to us in verse 1 of chapter 5. Now let me remind you by way of background that the whole testimony of the New Testament is that faith is central to being a Christian. Jesus' ministry, you remember, began with the great affirmation, repent and believe the gospel because the kingdom of God has come among you. And at the heart of the apostles' message in the book of Acts, as we have seen in that long series of studies through that book, is the summons both to repentance and to biblical faith. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus, said Peter in his great sermon on the day of Pentecost to the assembled multitudes. To the individual believer, the same message was given as in Acts 16. To the repentant jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved together with your household. And faith is nothing according to these passages than a saving grace which is given to us by God himself, whereby I receive and rest upon the Lord Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. Now the point is this, that when I have come to that position of faith in the Lord Jesus, I can see very clearly that I cannot save myself from the wrath of God that rests upon me. He alone can save me. And I see that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal Son of God incarnate, the only way of life for me, a convicted and guilty sinner who has come into this world to bear the sin debt that is mine and take it away by his great work upon the cross of Calvary. Now it is impossible to be born of the Spirit of God and not to believe on Jesus as Savior and Lord. But you see, the question is this, is it something that I contribute to my salvation? 
Does God do his part? And then does he look to me to do my part? Is faith the cause of salvation or is it the consequence of salvation? And as you look again at chapter 5, verse 1, it's so clear that faith is not the cause of my salvation, but it is the consequence of my salvation in Christ. I am born again first, and by virtue of becoming a new creation in Christ Jesus, I believe in him simultaneously. And it's very important for us, beloved, to grasp this in a day and an age where so much erroneous Christian teaching is being given to us that faith is the cause of salvation. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, says John, has been born of God. It is a Greek past tense. Faith is the evidence that I am the subject of a mighty, regenerating work of God's Spirit, taking me out of sin into righteousness, out of darkness into newness of life. And that's why you remember when Jesus deals with the subject of being born and you are born again with Nicodemus in chapter 3. It's very interesting that Jesus never tells Nicodemus how to be born again as so many of our modern evangelists are at pains to do, because they believe that faith is the cause of salvation. What Jesus did for Nicodemus in that chapter is to teach him three things. The necessity of being born again, the sovereignty of God in that work, and the mysterious nature of it. And you may pour over that passage and study it down to your dying day, and you will not come up with any other division of what Jesus said than that. It is necessary. It is a work of the sovereignty of God, and it is mysterious in its nature, like the wind whose source we cannot discover that blows where it wants to. And this is vital to grasp it, beloved. The very faith that is given to us is from God, and it is he who enables us to believe because at that point we are already regenerated by God's inward and mysterious work of his own spirit. If you have been born again, you have received Christ as Lord in faith that has accompanied your salvation and is the instrument of it. But it is the consequence of the new birth not its cause. And that's why faith is an evidence, you see, of the new birth. Now the second evidence, you will notice, is in chapter 3, verse 9, and again repeated in chapter 5, verse 18, no one who is born of God will what? Continue in sin. He cannot go on sinning, says our translation, because he has been born of God. So that freedom from sin is a second mark of the new birth. Now I believe it was Bishop J.C. Ryle in one of his many writings who said that a right knowledge of man's sinful state by nature 
lies at the root of all saving Christianity. And he contended that, to quote him, dim and indistinct views of sin are at the root of most errors and heresies and false doctrines. What is at the root of so much false teaching in the church today? Dim and indistinct views of sin are at the root of so much error. And beloved, if you are in Christ this evening, it is part of your spiritual birthright that you should be free from sin in a certain, carefully defined, biblical sense. No one who is born of God, says John, will sin. Now we've seen, I think, very clearly what it does not mean. It does not mean that the born-again person is free from committing acts of sin, because he has already said in chapter 1, verse 8, as you readily recall, I hope, that if we deny that we sin, we make God a liar. And it does not mean that the principle of sin is destroyed entirely within us. We contend still with the cravings of a sinful nature, the lust of the eyes, as John put it, the boasting of what man does and has, and the cravings of sinful man itself. Now, John would have not warned us against these things in chapter 2 if what he means by being free of sin means that sin no longer entices and allures us, that we no longer have any problem from the quarter of sin. We know that to deny that we commit sin and are allured by it is to make God a liar. But what it does mean, as our translation correctly renders it, is that the child of God cannot commit sin as a habit of life. He is not habitually found in sinful ways. And the reason is that in regeneration, the whole tenor of a man's life and a woman's life is changed toward holiness. Whereas before in my nature, there was the bias toward sin. A new principle reigns there so that I am no longer under the dominion of that old bias. Just as in the bowling ring, there is an inbuilt bias in each ball you roll down the court. The effect of grace is that that bias no longer dominates and rules in our lives. Whereas before regeneration, the old nature, corrupted and sinful as it was, is in control. Now the new nature is in control. As the apostle so clearly says in Romans 6. But he says, thank God that from the heart you received that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. So that you are no longer slaves to sin, he says but slaves to righteousness. And this new nature that is the seed of God, says John in these verses, cannot sin. Now because of this new nature, the child of God, you see, cannot habitually 
and deliberately and willfully live in sin. It is unnatural that he should do so. He cannot make sin the practice of his life. Now use this as a test in your own experiences. That where you are tonight. Do you know a consciously changed relationship with sin? It's there. Of course it's there. Alluring, enticing, annoying, distracting. But it is not the ruling principle of my life anymore. And beware, beloved, of that unscriptural and damaging teaching that says in the church today, you can take Christ as your Savior and later take him as your Lord. And meantime, live as a carnal Christian. There is no greater perversion of the biblical teaching than that, I think, in the church today and in the evangelical church. Because if you are born again, you know freedom from sin in this biblical sense as you never knew it before. Now this leads to the third mark, doesn't it? Very naturally in chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is what? A liar, says John. Obedience is the third mark, if you like, of the new birth. Now it's so obvious, isn't it, and springs from what I've just said to you that we needn't delay ourselves here. It's foolish to talk of love where there is an habitual disobedience to the authority of the one we profess to love. And if I live like that, I have a false profession indeed. If I claim to know and love the Lord Jesus, yet live in deliberate disobedience to his holy laws, I am not what I claim I am, however loudly I may profess it. And where the work is a work of God in regeneration, it will lead me to willingly be in submission to authority biblically exercised, primarily the authority of my Lord, who said, if you love me, keep my commandments, and secondarily, it will lead me to be in submissive obedience to every other kind of scriptural authority as well, however painful that experience may be. He has broken the spirit of rebellion that characterized me as an unchristian man or unchristian woman. And he has made me learn to love, to walk according to his holy will. So you see, whatever constitutes divine authority in the home, in the church, under lawfully appointed church offices, in the civil government of this country, in my personal relationships with others, I seek to live in biblical obedience to Christ. Because if I say I know him and do not do what his royal word commands, I've made him, or I am myself rather, a liar. Now look you, the fourth mark is righteousness in chapter 2, verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, that is, God is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. 
Now it's another mark of the new birth. We need to think carefully about this for a moment. We practice righteousness if we are born again. Now, of course, every true child of God has imputed to him the righteousness of Christ. That is, at the very heart, the saving heart of the glorious gospel of God's grace. I am justified by faith in another. The Lord has become my righteousness. And all my unrighteousness and unworthiness is covered over from the sight of a holy God by the righteousness of Christ who lived for me and died for me and gave me the seamless garment of his own blessed righteousness. It is imputed to me by faith. But beloved in the Christian life, there is another righteousness which we dare not be without. What is it? An imparted righteousness an imparted principle of righteousness. And John is referring to it here. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. How do I know that you are a child of God and not some counterfeit this evening? Because I hear you say, certainly, I am under the imputed righteousness of Christ, but I have a test by which I know whether that is true of you or not. And it is I look at your life and I say to myself, is there an imparted righteousness that is characteristic of this man or woman, this boy or girl, that results from the new birth by which you as a child of God are becoming progressively more holy. You are forsaking sin. You are growing in holiness. You are developing a sanctified lifestyle. And the person who is a Christian, you see, desires and endeavors to live according to God's will in that way to do the things constantly that are pleasing to him. We don't succeed 100%, but the question is, is that the endeavor and direction and intent of my life? He not only stands perfect in the righteousness of Christ, in other words, but he continually seeks after the righteousness of Christian experience that is the fruit of the new birth unto holiness. Now that's the fourth mark. What is the fifth? Well, if you turn to chapter 3, verse 14, you see it. We know that we have passed from death to life. How? Because we love our brothers. Now I'm going to deal with that in detail, God willing, two Sundays hence. But let me just touch on it now. It's the fifth mark. It is, beloved, as impossible to be born again and not to love as it is impossible to have physical life by the first birth and not to breathe. Do you realize that? You're physically alive this evening. One evidence of it is that you are drawing a breath almost every moment. 
And this is so vital a part of the spiritual life into which we have come that John repeatedly draws our attention to it all through this letter as one of the three great tests, as you know. Do I love my brother and sister in Christ from the heart? It is, as you know, the word, the Greek word agape, that has no effective translation really in English. It's different from every other kind of human love, a level of love that cannot be known by an unbeliever. It's not rooted in the emotions or in the intellect, what I think about a person, but rooted in the very divine love of God himself who loves even the unlovely. And it's the desire to bestow the very best upon that one who has been chosen as the object of that love, regardless of the worth of that person. And quite simply it means this, that if I do not love my brother in Christ in this way, then I am a stranger to the new birth. Now the sixth mark is this. If you look at chapter 5, verse 4, for everyone born of God, says John, has overcome the world. Now, do you remember in our studies of the book, we made it very clear, I think, that the world in John's writing doesn't refer to the physical existence of things round us, the rocks and the trees and the running rivers and the open sky above us and the heavens and the stars, because there's no evil in matter itself. But what it does refer to is the world as an organized system of unbelief. Everyone born of God has overcome what J.G. Machen so fittingly called the organized kingdom of the carnal world. The world that we read about, remember, in Psalm 120, that is hostile to God in all its ways and all its speech. And if we're a Christian, we've overcome that system of ungodliness and evil. It's J.C. Ryle who says a man born again or regenerate does not make the world's opinion his rule of right or wrong. He does not mind going against the stream of the world's ways, notions and customs. What will men say is no longer a turning point with him. He overcomes the love of the world. He finds no pleasure in the things which most around him call happiness. He cannot enjoy their enjoyment. They weary him. They appear to him vain, unprofitable, unworthy of an immortal being. He overcomes the fear of the world. He is content to do many things which all around him think to be unnecessary, to say the least. They blame him. That does not move him. They ridicule him. He does not give way. He loves the praise of God more than the praise of men. He fears offending him more than giving offense to man. And so we could go on. The test, beloved, is, is that your situation? Are you being transformed by the renewing of your mind? Or is the world, as Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1, 
simply molding you after its own fashion by conforming you to it. If you are born again, you have overcome the world. And finally, as I finish, the seventh mark in chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, is that we have a new consciousness of sin. If we claim to be without sin, verse 8, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We've already noticed that the believer loves righteousness and does not make a habit of sinning in his practice. But it does not deny, as I emphasize, that there are remnants of sin indwelling in us. And we cannot deny the fact that we do sin. But what is significant, surely, about these verses in terms of the Christian evidence is this. The more we walk in the light and love one another and obey the Lord and have these marks in our lives, the more conscious we become of sin dwelling in us. And the more inclined we are to say, I cannot claim to be without sin. And as Paul reminds us in Romans 7, which remember is a description of the man in Christ, not the man out of Christ. We groan under the remnants of remaining sin and long to be delivered not only from its power, but from its presence eventually. And we are, in the words of Martin Luther, simul peccator, simul justus, always a sinner, yet always justified by Christ. And if that passage in Romans 7 teaches us anything, it is the nearer we draw to the throne of God, the more conscious we become of how dreadful a sinner we really are, but a sinner saved by almighty grace, a new consciousness of sin. Well, in conclusion, these are just some of the main marks of the new birth, yet they are enough for us to examine ourselves this evening to see if we are in the faith. And I ask you, do you have these marks? Faith unfeigned in the Lord Jesus, obedience, righteousness, love, overcoming the world, a new consciousness of sin. Are you born again? Have you come to the Lord Jesus as a guilty sinner for his salvation? Because if you have, these are the things that should be distinguishing your life more and more and more. May God grant by his grace that it may be so. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time spent together. Sanctify our hearts in thy truth, for thy glory's sake. Amen.